What's up, Lions of Liberty fans? You can now support this show on Patreon and get exclusive access to bonus audio and video content, including Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests, and so much more. Head on over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, every single week on Felony Friday, I focus on exposing injustice in this nation's broken criminal justice system. I do this by bringing on people who have been through the ring or been through the system and come out on the other side to find success after prison. I also interview activists and authors and police officers and people of that type to shine a light on injustice in this broken system. This week, I got a special show, a great guest, going to introduce him in just a minute. Before I do that, I just want to remind you guys that on the Lions of Liberty podcast network, we do actually have three shows. So every Monday, we kick off the week with a show hosted by Mark Clare. It's our longest running program and our flagship program. And on that show, Mark will interview leaders in the libertarian movement. And also from time to time, about once a month, he'll host a roundtable discussion with uh, sometimes with people in the liberty movement, sometimes just fellow Lions of Liberty will gather around the table and talk about current events and all kinds of crazy stuff. On Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land, a very entertaining show hosted by the (laughs) always angry and uh, passionate Brian McWilliams. It's called Electric Liberty Land, and it's your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever the heck you're listening to this podcast right now, just hit that button. Subscribe. Do it. Or if you're watching on YouTube, click that bell at the top and subscribe on YouTube so you don't miss a single episode of Felony Friday or any show on the Lions of Liberty podcast network. In order to find the show notes page with links and notes to everything that I'm going to talk about with my guest today, You just want to go to lionsofliberty.com slash FF157. Let's get rolling with today's show. My guest today on Felony Friday is Jason Brennan. Jason is the Robert J. and Elizabeth Flanagan Family Professor of Strategy, Economics, Ethics, and Public Policy at McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. He's also the Research Professor in the Department of Political Economy and Moral Science and the Freedom Center at the University of Arizona. He specializes there in politics, philosophy, and economics. Jason has also written nine books on a wide variety of topics. Not going to list them all here, but the one we're going to be focusing on today is his latest book titled When All Else Fails, Resistance, Violence, and State Injustice. Jason, welcome to Felony Friday. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> you know, I think your title, both of your titles, are some of the longest titles I've heard, and I don't know how you fit that all on a business card. Yeah, it's absurdly long. I just say Flanagan Family Professor. That's it. It works. 
Well, that's cool, man. Um, you know, I want to get into talking about your book, but before we go down that road, you know, just to give my listeners out there who aren't familiar with you, with your work, with your books, and uh, everything you've contributed um, to the to this discussion in the past, I thought maybe just sort of a high level question. This a lot of people listening are libertarians. There are people on the left and right as well, but just to give a little background on yourself, what really first got you fascinated, interested? in tackling the ideas of liberty and tackling, you know, really the topic of your of your book here, resistance, violence, and, and the state of injustice. Yeah, good. So with regard to the liberty question, um, for me, uh, it was Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson book. I had a, a high school teacher in 11th grade, you were required to take an economics class in New Hampshire, um, who recommended I read that book for some scholarship competition. And it really just changed my outlook on life. Um, Henrik, uh, his lesson was don't just look at the short-term consequences of a policy on a small group of people, but look at the long-term consequences on everybody. And I think once I started moving over to the economic point of view, I started seeing that a lot of the common sense policies that people advocate don't really produce good consequences. And that that's, it turns out liberty often produces better consequences. As far as uh, this particular topic, the topic of injustice and so on, it's simultaneously a current events thing and a philosophical thing. The mm-hmm. philosophical thing is that philosophers have spent 2,500 years trying to argue basically for lowering the moral standards that we apply to government agents, trying to say that in one way or in ex- another, government agents are, are exempt from the standards that you and I are bound by. And their arguments are often unsatisfactory. And so I was wondering about that. And then simultaneously, we just had, thanks to uh, everyone carrying a camera with them all the time, an explosion of things demonstrating how brutal the police in the United States can be, along with people like Snowden and Chelsea Manning and others revealing state secrets and finding out just what sorts of things the government was doing. Mm-hmm. So there was a kind of crisis of government legitimacy and police legitimacy. And I started wondering, what are, what are, what are we permitted to do as citizens in response to state injustice? It led to a couple articles and then finally to this book. So, you know, w- one of the questions that you tackle in this book um, you know, when people face or when people see a video of a police brutality or they see, you know, an Eric Garner situation, something like that occur. I mean, there's been so many examples in the past couple of years, as you stated, with everyone carrying a camera today. You know, obviously, libertarians speak out, people on the left speak out and say, you know, this is police violence. It has to stop. But what are the options? I mean, people say the options are either you leave you can complain about it, or you can you know, just comply, or is there another option? Right. So I think that the fourth option is resistance. Um, and by resistance, I mean, more specifically, what you might call defensive action. So everybody's familiar with this thing called civil disobedience. Civil disobedience is a strategic thing that people do where they will knowingly break a law in public for the purpose of gaining sympathy for their cause. Mm-hmm. So an example of civil disobedience might be something like, Suppose you think that marijuana criminalization is unjust, so you organize a bunch of people who will go to a park and all publicly smoke marijuana in front of everyone. They won't resist arrest. They'll allow themselves to be arrested, and they do so in order to demonstrate that people who smoke pot might be just normal people and that uh, they're not bad people and they shouldn't be arrested. Um, So civil disobedience is like a public act of breaking a law for the purposes of changing the law. What I'm calling defensive action or the kind of resistance I have in mind is different. It would be something like, if a police officer tries to arrest you for pot possession and you pull out your um, your mace and spray him in the eyes and run away, there you're not trying to change the law 
You're not working to overturn a policy. You're simply trying to stop that particular injustice, the injustice of being arrested for that from happening. Um, so defensive actions can include things like the use of deception, sabotaging um, some sort of policy, sabotaging property, destroying property, um, or even various kinds of physical resistance from mild forms of violence up to deadly violence against perpetrators of injustice. It can include things like uh, lying about the content of a law. Like let's say you're a judge in the, uh, in the Dred Scott case in, 19, in, sorry, in 1856, and you're asked to interpret, does the what does the Constitution say about um, the citizenship status of Black Americans? And it might very well be that given case law and given what the Constitution says, it actually implies that they're not citizens, but you realize that this is an unjust law, so you decide to lie about the content of the Constitution mm -hmm. in order to prevent an injustice from occurring. It could mean working for the government but refusing to follow orders and even working to sabotage those orders. It could be something like Schindler supplying... Um, uh, weapons to the Nazi regime, but sabotaging the weapons to make them not work. Uh, it could mean that you resist arrest when you're being arrested, or you try to break out of jail, or you evade taxes or lie about your compliance with certain unjust regulations. It can mean all of those different things. So uh, there's people out there that that would hear you say that and uh, just say, well, that's, that's dangerous. You know, society could devolve into chaos. What, what, how would you respond to that? Yeah, people, it's one of the common objections to this whole idea is that it's a dangerous thesis, and it is in certain ways. It is dangerous because we do make mistakes. So one of the things I try to be clear about in the book is I'm not saying that you have the right to resist the state whenever you disagree with the state. Um, I'm not, because I'm, I'm not a moral relativist. I don't think that the state can decide what right and wrong is, but I also don't think that you as an individual get to decide what it is either. I think there's some truth of the matter about what justice requires, and we're required to comply with that. And we can, I can make mistakes, you can make mistakes, the political majority can make mistakes, and the state can make mistakes. But that said, um, it's also dangerous because when I say that certain kinds of resistance, resistance are permissible, they're often imprudent. So imagine I'm bullying you in high school, and I'm, you know, I'm just bigger than you, let's say. Um, and I'm, I'm picking on you, it would be permissible for you to fight back, but it might not be a good idea because maybe I'm so big, if you fight back, I'll just beat you up more. So mm -hmm. it's permissible to fight back against me, but given my size advantage, it might not be a good idea. Something like that applies to certain police officers. I think in the Eric Gardner case, or uh, say in the Richard Hubbard III case with this uh, person in Euclid who I start the book with, who was being beaten up by a police officer, who by the way, who was since fired. Um, I think it would be permissible to use violence, including deadly violence, against the police officer. Can you just give a little bit, little bit more background on that case, just so? Yeah, well, you know, the, there's something tricky about this uh, because the police in question often dispute the fine details. But if you go and watch a video of Richard Hubbard, what you'll see on the video on YouTube is his car goes slightly past a red like the white line um, at a red light, turns right. Um, the cops flash their lights. They pull him over. He the, opens the door. The police officer approaches the door. He grabs uh, Hubbard out and immediately starts punching him and attacking him. Hubbard puts his hands up. And then even when Hubbard is completely subdued, he continues to punch him and attack him on the back. Mm -hmm. But um, it's worth noting that the police officer in question disputes some of the details. I don't know how he can because there's a video. But nevertheless, mm -hmm. for legal purposes, I have to say that what I'm saying is controversial. Um, so anyways... Uh, I think in cases like this where you see excessive violence, say the Rodney King beating, um, or you see unjust violence, someone's being arrested for something that just shouldn't be illegal, uh, Alan Turing being arrested for engaging in homosexual sex, uh, it's permissible to fight back. But 
the cops are well armed and they're better fighting than you. And so there's a good chance they might send a SWAT team to come kill you. So it's permissible, but it might not be a good idea. That's it. So that's one idea of danger. The other idea of danger, though, is that if everyone believes this, what will happen? I'm not as worried about that. And the reason is because I think we have a lot of psychological research about what human beings are like. And what we know about most human beings is that they are deferential cowards who defer to authority. So you, everyone knows, for example, the Milgram experiments. That's the mm-hmm. experiment where um, a researcher brings in a person and has him administer electric shocks to what they think is another experimental right. subject who's doing some sort of memory test or vocabulary test or it can vary from version to version. Um, and what you find is that almost everybody is willing to administer electric shocks to a person that for all they know is unconscious and possibly dead, where the shocks are labeled with things like danger, high voltage, and XXX because a person in a white lab coat told them to. When people tell the, say to you, I've got a bunch of Jews here, I need you to murder them, the typical person says, sure, no problem, let me get right on that. People are deferential cowards. They do what the state says, and they do what, they do what the law requires, even when it's unjust. Yeah, look at the My TSA for, another, for a recent example. Yeah, yeah well, hey, it's like a, I mean, the TSA program, I, I tend to think about the TSA as, it's not a security program, it's a jobs program. The purpose of the TSA is to give jobs to people who otherwise wouldn't get jobs and would be on welfare. Um, because you look at the kind of people they hire and that seems to be what's going on. If you think of it as a jobs program, you're like, all right, I get it now. Now I can understand why it's slow and crappy. Mm -hmm. Um, If I offended you, if you're a TSA agent, maybe you're one of the exceptions, but probably not. So, uh, um, I'm going to lose my like good quick TSA status because of that. Now, you know, I'm going to lose my (laughs) anyways. Um, so, so I would say the person who says your thesis is dangerous, I'm like, it is a little bit, but your thesis, the thesis that we should comply with the law has historically been a disaster. What if people had been more willing to resist injustice? What if they've been willing to, to not go along with what the state does? What if people weren't so willing to just work as agents of injustice in exchange for a paycheck? What if they thought the following, that I can't do something just because I was ordered to, or that just because the majority says something about someone's rights disappear, they don't disappear. I think the world would have been a better place. So yes, there's, in a sense, I'm saying like there's an, there's an optimal amount of deference to authority. And I guess from your perspective, we're like over here on the curve. We should be back here. Yeah. I, I'm just curious. So, I mean, I understand what you're getting at with people, the vast majority of the people, you know, yielding to authority and, and being afraid to speak up. This is also the vast majority of the people of this country voted for either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump in the last election. So we have to wonder what their what their capacity to make critical decisions are, or just looking at the really the cumulative decisions that have gotten us to this point in this country w- w- with our government. I, I'm just wondering. So how how would you see this playing out? Would this be really just a small group of people? starting to make some of these judgment calls that could cause a uh, sort of a, a waterfall, a, a ripple effect throughout society or? Yeah. In a sense, I'm not even, I'm not even advocating a policy change per se, because the book is not about, it's not an argument that if people read this book and they start resisting, then the result will be that the laws will become more just. Mm-hmm. I don't think that'll happen. We don't, I think in economics or political science or related fields have what's called a good theory of social change. We don't really know why some governments decide to become less unjust or more liberal. We don't know what causes that. And I'm not saying that like my book, if widely read, would lead to that either. I mean, maybe it would, but I don't have good evidence for that per se. It really is about individual acts of injustice and saying that this is really the thesis in one sentence. It's whatever right of self-defense you have against me, 
you also have against any government agent, regardless of whether they're wearing a badge or wearing a uniform, and regardless of whether they're acting within accordance of the law. So the conditions under which you have the right to defend yourself or others from civilian injustice are also exactly the same conditions under which you have the right to defend yourself from government injustice. They're one and the same. Um, if that's the case, then that might mean that depending on your circumstances, you know, for most people that might not mean much of anything. Um, it might, maybe nothing will ever come up, but it might be you're in a situation like this and you would recognize that you have permission to resist in various ways. You can, you can lie to police officers. You can, I mean, here, here's maybe like a common example. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because of my saying this, I'll never actually get called to be a juror, but imagine that I'm being called to jury duty. And one of the things they're going to ask me uh, is, would you be comfortable enforcing a law that you think is unjust? So if I were asked that question, I would lie and say yes. And then if I get a drug case, I would hang the jury. Like I would just say not guilty. And when the judge comes in, if he says to me, um, are you trying to nullify the law? I'd be like, I just think the evidence isn't proper. There's enough mm-hmm. evidence to call him guilty. I would just lie to his face because I think that the laws are, unju- I mean, the laws are unjust. And that's because I think they're unjust. They're unjust laws. They're bad laws. So that's the kind of thing where, you know, you could do it and get away with it. Okay. Um, you have to be careful about it. Um, if you make a video like this, they might find it and then you'll just get kicked off the jury. But that's the kind of thing that you could do. Um, most people aren't going to be in a, resi- in a situation where they'd ever have cause to resist police officers. Uh, or anything else like that. Now, if you work for the government, if you're a soldier, if you work for the State Department, if you work for the CIA, uh, if you're a judge or so on, these cases might come up more often. If you're a police officer, then you might have cases where you're expected to enforce certain laws, but the laws are unjust, and so you should not enforce them. Is is there an element of agorism to this, uh, circumventing the system as well, or are we talking more about direct interaction with state authority. Yeah, I mean, I mean for this to be a theory about resisting instances of state action. Uh, so when, the gov- when a government agent acting ex officio or not does some particular unjust activity, mm-hmm. what are you permitted to do in response? Um, in a sense, I, th- I think this is a book that libertarians will like and will be sympathetic to the conclusions. But I also want to say, I don't think of this as a particularly libertarian book. I mean, the way I've written it, it's I'm not basing it upon libertarian principles. I'm trying to base it upon common sense moral principles that almost every one of every ideology shares and upon widely accessible facts that don't rely upon a kind of controversial empirical view that's the only libertarians think. Mm-hmm. So I, I wouldn't say that I, I wouldn't call this like a left-wing view, a right-wing view, an agorist view, a libertarian view. I just think it's the view that whatever your background ideology is, you should insert into your, uh, as a module into your ideology. Right. So w- what kind of feedback have you gotten on the book so far? Positive response, negative response? Mixed? Well, kind of dep- yeah, good question. It, it sort of depends upon whether they've read it or not or read the argument. I mean, we, in a sense, we haven't even really gone through the arguments yet. We're just describing some mm-hmm. of the uh, conclusions of it. Um, what I find is if people don't read it and they just hear the conclusion, I'll get, that's insane. You're going to get people killed. I got a, I got a police officer, or retired police officer used to teach um, use of force to other police officers. You said, you're going to get people killed. And I said, well, you know, if they misuse it, yeah, that's a risk of it. But on the other hand, the stuff you're doing was getting people killed too. Um, so I, I get those often negative responses from those people. Uh, I've gotten some weird responses where uh, on Facebook, a bunch of people mistook me for uh, John Brennan, who they believe, I guess there's some conspiracy theory that he's still a communist. And I got a lot of people like attacking me and saying, you're a communist. I'll never buy a book from you. They were after him, not me. 
But my surprise is that when I delivered lectures on it, um, where I actually go through the argument, or when I when people read it, they often go, "Huh, I, I guess I agree with you. I wasn't expecting to, but yeah, at the end of the day, I guess you're probably right." Um, so I guess that's it. Like if they read it, if they read it, I think they become more sympathetic towards the end. If they just hear the conclusion, they go, "That can't possibly be right." Yeah. So we, we did we did start with the conclusion, sort yeah. of. So I'll give I'll give you a chance to to present your your argument here. So what? What is the the backing the, the principles behind your argument that really should should sell this to the masses? Yeah, good. So, I mean, the basic thought is that um, what there's something called special immunity. The idea of special immunity is that government agents have a special right, like they the conditions under which um, you can resist government agents are more stringent than the conditions under which you can resist me. Call that special immunity. So the special immunity thesis is the theory that they have that. Mm-hmm. And so what I ask in the beginning of the book is, is there any, re- most people believe this, but is there any reason to believe it? And what I basically just try to do is go through all the possible arguments that people give and try to show that they don't work in one way or another. And there's dozens of different arguments. Um, and so after I kind of knock them all down, I go, well, it looks like we don't have any reason to believe in special immunity. So we shouldn't st- said believe in moral parity. The moral parity thesis is just that, again, Whatever right of self-defense you have against me, you have against a cop, right? Mm-hmm. If I do something to you, if I try to arrest you for smoke, for drinking caffeine, that's the same thing as a cop arresting you for drinking caffeine. And if you can resist me for doing it, you can resist him, even if the law says he's allowed to arrest you. Um, so then we have to go through, like, well, what are the various arguments for special immunity? Do any of them work? And there's dozens and dozens of them, so I won't go through them all, but I'll give you, like, some examples. Sure. So one argument that people will say is, well... Uh, you know, the state has this thing called authority and you don't, that's why state, like the state has the, when you, the state issues a law, you have an obligation to obey the law. But what's puzzling about that is, first of all, it's not really clear. um, If you read the philosophical literature that there is any such thing as a duty to obey the law per se. Most of the arguments that philosophers have come up with for the past 2,500 years just don't really seem to work. But the other problem with them is even if you could establish something like there's a duty to pay your taxes or there's a, like at least some taxes, a duty to serve on jury duty, a duty to like obey the speed limit, um, kind of like basic things. Those, the arguments that get you to that conclusion don't get you to the conclusion that like you have to let police officers arrest you for smoking pot. You know, so someone might say, here's like a particular argument They go, well, um, you shouldn't free ride on, public goods and on the provision of peace. So we all benefit from living under a system and sets of institutions that promote the public order, that promote the peace, that make it so that people can live together well and that we're not just all fighting all the time. And you as a person who benefits from that, you should do your part and contribute to that thing. And that's why you should pay some taxes for police provision. That's why you should serve on jury duty if called. That's why you should you know, when they say the speed limit is 75, you know, drive 75, don't drive 95. That's why you should go along with some of these rules. And that's a pretty good argument as far as it goes for those things. But then imagine someone says, oh, and also that means that um, if we decide to bomb Tuvalu and you're a soldier, you have to do it. And if we decide that we're going to throw you in jail for smoking a thing that makes you happy, people are going to think I'm a pothead because I keep using an example. I'm not. Um, we're going we're gonna to throw you in jail for using a drug that makes you happy. Um, you have to do it. Or if we decide to throw you in jail for too long, you have to go along with it. Or if we, um, the cop's having a bad day and he just decides to beat the shit out of you, you have to let him do it. Like none of that follows from that argument. So with the people who believe in state authority, they don't simply have to show that there's like a general duty to obey working laws that serve some sort of purpose. They have to show specifically that there is a duty to obey laws 
that permit or actions from government officials that cause incredible injustice, the very kind of injustice that you would be permitted to defend yourself against if it were done by a civilian. And no one's even attempted to do that. Right? So that's one argument. And then like another argument would be something like, um, well, you shouldn't be a vigilante, right? So people say things like, you know, this was John Locke's argument for why we have a state. It's dangerous to have vigilante justice. If everybody's running around trying to enforce all the moral rules themselves, they tend to be bad at it. They tend to be biased. You know, I'll be like overly forgiving of myself and overly um, revengeful towards people that harm me. So we need the to cops have, are never the cops are never biased. So. No, no, of course not. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you can you can go to like the uh, Thin Blue Line website and just see how just open they are. Yeah. Um, right, so. Yeah, that's right. I'm like, now that you said that, I'm thinking about all the like weird incentives. My, my friend, uh, Chris Soprano and I are writing a book called Injustice for All, all about like the bad incentive structures that cause um, dysfunction in American criminal justice. Right. And it's like thinking about all the weird stuff. That'd but, be interesting. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, um, so they'll say like, all right, so you shouldn't be a vigilante. Um, it, and that makes sense in certain contexts. So if you're walking down the street and you see somebody getting mugged and the police are there and they say, hold on, we're going to stop the mugging it's reasonable for you to defer to the police because they're better trained than you. They're better able to stop it and so on. And that's like what the anti-vigilante thing is for. It might mean something like if OJ Simpson is accused of murder and he gets called innocent, you shouldn't take it upon yourself to punish him. Even if he really did do it, you might just say, okay, well, we had this fair procedure. It turned out the fair procedure, maybe got the wrong answer, but we're going to just let it lie. Right. Okay. I can see things like that, but it doesn't apply to things like, well, I'm a police officer and I pulled you over for something and I just start beating the hell out of you and you resist. It would be, you're not being a vigilante in that kind of case. Um, the, the anti-vigilante thing does not say you have to let the police be the mugger. It says, and it also, if like the police are not stopping a mugging, like let's say you witness a mugging and the police are there and you're like, Hey, there's a mugging right over there. You need to stop that. And they go, no, we don't want to. We're having our donut break. Well, in that case, you're permitted to intervene. You should defer to the police when they're intervening because they're better at it. But if they're not intervening, then you can't. That's all the anti-vigilante principle says. If, on the other hand, they're attacking you unjustly, then you're not being a vigilante. You're just defending yourself. So I think it's like a misapplication of the principle. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to, like, the first thing I think of when I think of vigilante justice is, you've seen the movie A Time to Kill? With, long, long ago, yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, John Grisham book, yeah, like way back in the yeah. 90s. I don't remember the specifics of it, but I think uh, you know, a man's a man's daughter gets raped, and they bring the the two rapists to trial. And I can't remember if he kills them before or after the trial, or if they're set free. But he he ends up going on trial for the uh, for the deaths, killing the men that raped his daughter, and he's the jury sets him free. So I guess that's a case of uh, of, of nullification, but. When it, when it comes to vigilante justice, are people fearful of sort of it, society devolving into warring factions of, uh, you, know, when, you know, people talk about a, a libertarian society, they talk about private police forces warring back and forth. You think that's an aspect of it? Or is it that people are afraid that if they go knock on their neighbor's door, that their neighbor's going to mistake it for a robber and, and shoot them in the face and, or, or, or something of that nature? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both of those things. I think people tend to think that um, the only way to have order is if we have a public, you know, governmental um, monopoly on the provision of order, um, and that anything else will lead to just violence and chaos. And even though you you might say to people, 
So, in fact, a lot of order is kept without the police. Uh, it's not like we would ever potentially even call the police for most transactions. I mean, most of the time when I purchase something, I'm spending less than $25. I would never sue somebody for ripping me off of that $25 because the transaction cost of suing them is higher than the possible return from the lawsuit. You can point that kind of stuff out to people and they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But even if that's the majority of cases, it's still we need to have this like public system to keep order. I think, I think that's what most people think. They believe in that kind of Lockean story that it would be like a war of all against all if it weren't for the state. Um, and I think they also just worry, like you said, about um, people being biased towards them own, their own selves and like misapplying this principle, um, acting in self-defense when they shouldn't act in self-defense. Um, you know, so the conditions of self-defense are in, in English common law, and I think in common sense moral thinking, the principle of self-defense is something like this. I'm allowed to defend myself against you when, or again, defend another person against you if you are the attacker. You're the person who started the violence. You're the person who started the injustice. You're in imminent, we are in imminent danger of having, of being severely harmed or having our rights severely violated by you. And it's necessary to use a certain kind of defensive action to stop you. So the necessity condition here means something like, um, I'm only allowed to use violence if some nonviolent means to stop you doesn't work. And um, necessity also means something like, uh, it doesn't mean like strictly, like there's no possible nonviolent means, but rather any nonviolent means is, is not as effective as the violent means. And what ends up happening, and there's also a condition of like uncertainty and people worry about this, but it's interesting because there's a lot of case law about self-defense that's built up. And I don't remember the name of the case because I'm not a lawyer that I put in, I you know, looked it up and put it in the book. There's this famous uh, case that um, where a guy was being mugged. He's being pushed around by another thug, and he's re it's reasonable the jury decide for him to fear for his life. So the mugger reaches into his pocket in his coat, and it turns out he was reaching for a pack of cigarettes. But the guy who's being pushed around, he thought he was reaching for a gun or a weapon. He was going to kill him. And it turned out that the guy being pushed around had a weapon, so he killed the guy at that moment. And it went to trial, and they decided it was justifiable self-defense because they said it was reasonable for you in that circumstance to believe that he was reaching for a weapon, the uncertainty of it falls upon the perpetrator, not upon you. Right? That's an interesting thing about it, is that uncertainty should fall upon the perpetrator. It should not fall upon the victim. Right? Um, and I think that applies uh, to government cases as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so this next question, this might be a little bit outside of the scope of, of your latest book, but I'm, I'm sure you have an opinion on it. So when it comes to government injustice, abroad. If we're talking about foreign policy, big in the news right now, obviously, is pulling troops out of Syria, possible drawdown in Afghanistan. I mean, it's the the impact the U.S. forces have had in the Middle East and foreign nations. It's, it's hard to even quantify the, the death and the destruction that have been caused over the years. Is there an application of these principles in that arena? In a sense, yes, and in a sense, no. So one thing that there's a sense of is if you're in those countries, then this applies as much to government, other governments as your own government. Um, I think you have the same right of self-defense against a Middle Eastern government as you have against the American government, as you have against me. Um, so there's that. But then there's a bigger question about what should U.S. policy be with regard to foreign intervention? Um, and here, it's not so much about that, but there are some things that apply here, because a lot of this is based upon ideas about, um, about just war and uh, the dangers thereof. So there's questions about, um, you know, if, like, let's say you're attacking me 
and you're trying to shoot me and you're holding a person in front of you. That person's what's technically called an innocent shield. That's the philosophical term. Am I allowed to shoot through that person to stop you from shooting me? And, you know, most people think, well, maybe, but I have to treat that person's welfare as being kind of like equal to my own. I can't because they're innocent. Whereas like, you're not innocent, you're a proper target. And so that means that uh, there's questions here about collateral damage, but I, I, you know, I just tend to think like U.S. U.S. nation building is very ineffective. We're not very good at it. It's tremendously expensive. I mean, as the war in Afghanistan is winding down, assuming that's what's actually happening, I don't really know if it will. Uh, we've spent what six trillion dollars since 2000 on nation building and foreign intervention in the Middle East, including Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, the Brown University, where I used to work, has a database where they keep all these records about how many people have died, how much money has been spent. And what do we have to show for it? Not obviously anything, really. I mean, we still have we still have ISIS. Well, we didn't have ISIS before, but now we have ISIS. We still have various kinds of things like the Taliban. We still have um, corrupt leaders in other parts of the world. As soon as we leave, it'll probably go back to the way it was. I mean, what a waste of money and life. And think about all the... And granted, like, the people ruling those places would have been brutal and would have killed people. But now think about all the the innocent people that American soldiers have killed because we went over there and did that. You know, so we're putting this tremendous moral burden on soldiers who have to like blow up. You know, we want to kill that terrorist and he's surrounded by 50 innocent people, drone strike, right? And so like that's on our, that's not on my hands, but it's on the hands of the people who per- did those things. Right. Yeah. Two wrongs or 15 wrongs don't, don't make a right. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, Jason, I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time. If you could just uh, let my audience know where they can you know, find your books, where they can find your work, where they can uh, learn more about you, follow you on social media, all that stuff. Sure. So um, you can go on Facebook. There's a, a Facebook page for uh, When All Else Fails. Um, you can find the book in lots of different bookstores. It's on Amazon. It's on the Princeton University Press website. Um, and I, ble- I blog at bleedingheartlibertarians.com. So you can check me out there. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I want to tell you guys about a new podcast, friend of the show, friend of Lions of Liberty, Rachel Kennerly. Uh, She has a a new podcast that focuses on cannabis. She brings on, much like Felony Friday, where I bring on people to share their story about their experience in the criminal justice system, Rachel brings on people to share their stories about how they've used cannabis to heal themselves, how they've used medicinal cannabis to find healing. The show is called Cannabis Heals Me. And on the show so far, um, she's interviewed a couple who has a child with epilepsy using the cannabis to, to treat the epilepsy, someone with a traumatic brain injury, a lupus survivor, and a woman who has a medical condition referred to as suicide disease. Uh, they publish one episode per week. You can find the episodes wherever you find podcasts, or you can check out the website at CannabisHealsMe.com. All right, let's get back to today's show. Hope you guys enjoyed my interview today with Jason Brennan. Hope that you'll consider going out and picking up his book, When All Else Fails, Resistance, Violence, and State Injustice. It's a super, super, (laughs) can't talk today, super controversial topic. And I'm going to pick it up myself. I haven't read it yet. Didn't have time uh, with the holiday season and everything before this interview. But I knew just speaking with Brendan today and approaching this interview from the perspective of somebody who has not read the book would be good because those of you out there who have not read it, with which I'm assuming is a lot of you, 
um, get to hear about some of these questions coming from the perspective of someone who has not read it and studied it and is going to ask uh, the nitty-gritty details of the book. So hopefully this was valuable. Hopefully it enticed you to uh, research this topic more, to look into Jason's work and pick up this book. So you can find it on the show notes page at lionsofliberty.com slash FF157. Amazon link right there. So just go through and you can buy the book through that link. And, you know, I don't want to add a whole lot today. I just want to remind you again, we do have a Lions of Liberty Pride, a support, a way to support this podcast, a way to help us grow, a way to help us expand, because that is the goal of the Lions of, Lions of Liberty podcast. In 2019, we do have some, you know, unique plans in the works. I have talked about that on this show in the past, about splitting off this Felony, Fri- Felony Friday feed into a, a separate podcast feed. Uh, the show would still remain in the Lions of Liberty feed, but there'd be an additional podcast feed so people could share this show because it does sort of span the entire progressive over to you know conservatives on the right, libertarians in the middle spectrum of uh, political thought. You know, a lot of these stories, a lot of these people I bring on, um, the interest from hearing from these guests, you know, it doesn't matter if they're right, left, or center. Um, these stories are real. And it's real injustice, and it makes people think, and it wakes people up. So I want you, if you're a libertarian or whoever you are, you're on the political left or political right, I want you to be able to share this show, to share this podcast feed with anybody without fear of uh, you know them getting <laughs> subscribing to this, then listening to the next show, which are all awesome shows. You know, Mark and Brian are doing a great job, but they are more hardcore libertarian shows and you know Mark's bringing on some of the greatest thinkers in the libertarian movement. Brian is diving hardcore, big time, into um, the news lines, the headlines of today, current events, culture, and talking about that from a libertarian perspective. So not everybody is ready for that. So I know that people have been hesitant to share this show. So I'm really excited in 2019 for one of the things we're going to do is have that separate feed to start a growth uh to start some growth, new growth out of that so people can share that feed and and let that just uh, sort of see where it goes. Um, so, And to do that, we uh, you know, obviously cost more money. It's more time. It's, you know, it's enough time to keep one feed up, to keep two feeds up, to do little extra edits because I do want to have a, a Tuesday throwback episode in that new feed with the, of course, the that week's Felony Friday will be published on both feeds. But anyway... I'm not sure when that's going to launch. I will give you more details when I have them. Uh, It's going to take a little bit of time to get that set up and ironed out and figured out. Got to get a system in place. So leave it at that. Go to patreon.com slash lines of liberty. If you'd like to support us, if you'd like to help to expedite that process, um, the more money that I have to pay other people to do stuff, to take it off my own plate, uh, it can can happen faster. So patreon.com slash lines of liberty. Check out all the levels there. Appreciate your support. With that, I'm going to leave right there, guys. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. Burning.